and I'm Ashley Dees, and you're listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. Yeah, church. Yeah. 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 I'm a church surprise All right, well, it was November the 1st in 2007, and I was standing in front of the Gulf of Mexico in St. Petersburg, Florida. And I was standing with a whole bunch of our friends and relatives at the time, and the reason why we're all standing there out in front of the Gulf of Mexico, looking as happy as as our faces would if they had not been um, as blacked out as they are in this picture is because this was the exact moment that Amanda came walking with, with um, her father on the aisle at our wedding rehearsal night. And I know that I'm going to embarrass Amanda severely, but I don't care because I love this girl. And I mean, I will just never forget how beautiful and how radiant she looked, plain clothes, walking down that aisle. And I, I wanted to marry her then on her wedding rehearsal night. And yet, as it turns out, a lot of money had been spent on a dress, so we just waited until the next day. So, <laughs> so that was my woes for that night. But on that very next day, though, as I see my wife walking down the aisle, and again, just, I mean, all of this beauty around us, dolphins leaping into the, the gulf, I had been told later on. Not a cloud in the sky, perfect Florida day, but, but I didn't notice any of it because the only thing that I could notice was the beauty that was approaching me in that wedding dress. And we had, had a beautiful wedding ceremony, and we'll never forget it for, for as long as we, we live. And, and anytime that I go to a wedding or I see pictures of our wedding day, I mean, what washes over my, my mind is that marriage has to be God's most beautiful creation. As we see, as scripture opens up, God creates a beautiful world around it, but it seems like the most beautiful thing that he makes close to the very end of the creation process is he saves the best for last and he gives Adam a wife. And they enter into a union that is closer than than any other union that there is in this world. You see, it's so beautiful that when God searches for language to use to help us understand the way that he loves us. He refers to the church, and, and the name that he gives it is his bride. Meaning that, that when we become Christians, that, that we are spiritually married to Jesus. We are no longer two, but now his blood has brought us near into his family, and now we are spiritually married to him. As, as the Holy Spirit searches for language to use about how beautiful Christ's return is going to be, the exact language that he uses is a bride on her wedding day. Is he says that I, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride who has been adorned for her husband. This is, this is the, the imagery that God uses in order to help us understand as he wants husbands to understand just, just how exactly we are 
to treat our wives and to love our wives. He says, husbands, love your wives with the greatest love that this world has ever known, the love that nailed Jesus to the cross. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And so what this means is that, brothers, our marriages and the way that we treat our wives is to be a commercial to the rest of this world, an evangelistic ad campaign of this is what the love of Christ looks like in the way that I treat my wife. And yet that is quite a challenge for us, isn't it? And yet, as we will see this morning, as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks about marriage, but also the opposite of what marriage is. Because marriage is not the only word that is out there. There is another word, and it starts with a D. And every time that we hear the word of divorce, it's just one of those words that kind of just sits there, you know? It has the same feeling anytime that we, we hear words such as cancer, and maybe for appropriate reasons why it, it, it reminds us of that word, because, I mean, divorce is a very complex matter. Either we ourselves have been through a divorce before in our lives, or we know 67 people who have been through a divorce, maybe going through a divorce right now as we sit here this morning. And divorce is very tragic because what once was a very warm and a loving and a passionate relationship that, that felt utopian in nature, now all of a sudden is very cold and it's very sad and it's comatose and eventually it results in death of that relationship. But Jesus mentions the divorce of the time in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31, and he says, and as his custom is in these last few messages, he begins with the, with the convention in, in the religious world at the time, where he says that it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And I got to tell you, um, in 19 years of being a preacher, I have never once spoken about divorce for good reason. Because it's just not one of those topics that gets us very pumped up, is it? And yet, on his Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus says, this is what it looks like to be a follower. Jesus starts talking about divorce, and with good reason. I mean, I think every one of us knows what, what Scripture says about divorce, how it says in one place in the book of Malachi, God hates divorce. As Jesus says here, and we read verses like this, and he says that if you divorce your wife, and, and if she remarries, then, then they commit adultery. And it's like, oh my goodness, that, that just seems so harsh to us, but it's Jesus speaking. And so, I mean, what do we do with, with a verse like this? And, and, and I think it's unfortunate because a lot of the time it seems like we have had the wrong response to, to a verse like this. I mean, I can't tell you how many people who I've known who were also a theologian or who was, was a fellow minister who, who would only use this verse 
because all they wanted to do was just argue about marriage, divorce, and remarriage all the time. If, if their eyes are in the Bible, they just want to argue about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I don't know if you even knew this, but there is actually a um, school, a ministry in our brotherhood that had been started purely out of spite because of how the school I went to said, we need to look at divorce on a case-by-case basis, as Jesus says right here. And 100% of the time, anytime I've met anybody who graduated at this other school and they find out where I went to school, they immediately lose respect for me. They look at me with askance as if I'm some kind of a false teacher just because I went to that school. A lot of people love to argue MDR, but, but a lot of people also go to this verse almost in this eager way so that they can shame and interrogate anybody in the church who have ever gotten a divorce before. That is until they are the ones whose marriage is hanging on by a thread a few years later, you know? Or maybe they, they have, have a son or a daughter who's going through a divorce and suddenly they get very quiet about it all of a sudden. Isn't that funny? I've got a friend who is going through a divorce right now, is just about my age. And, and what happened was this friend of mine got married at a very young age, 19 or 20 years old. And they are a Christian, but their um, spouse never was. And I mean, they went to all the church services in the world and she tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to reflect the love of Christ to her, her spouse, but he just wasn't interested. And he doesn't believe in anything, it appears, and, and just felt no other recourse but to just get out of that. And people have all kinds of opinions about that, I realize. But what is most saddest about that is that my friend's mom had responded to this by, by saying, yeah, if you ever even date anybody ever again, you're going straight to hell. Because a lot of times our response to marriage, divorce, and remarriage is very dogmatic, isn't it? We like to jump to conclusions before we have all of the facts sometimes. And I asked that friend of mine if I could just share a little bit about what they're going through because I would love to have other perspectives other than... than, than always my, my own. And what they said is that they go to worship services at their home church, but every week they have learned that, that I've got to, to leave 20 minutes early because what's going to happen? Person after person after person is going to start prying about what's going on. And, and they're going to start throwing really the hardest thing in my life right in my face over and over and over again. And I mean, imagine coming to a worship service and every single week the worst experience in your life is just thrown in your face in a super judgmental way. Maybe that would make you not want to keep showing up, perhaps. And yet this was never meant to be used as a weapon against anybody, as, as a proof text to be isolated from its context. And so, as Jesus speaks about divorce and remarriage, I mean, there has to be something more to this than simply having an argument or a debate about it or being dogmatic about it. And as we see in Scripture, this was actually one of the most prevalent of debates in this time. 
Or you had one school of thought who would interpret what the law of Moses said about divorce as only on the grounds of morality. But you had a whole other school of thought that was very loose interpreting that text who said, no, 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 you can divorce your wife for any reason that you wish to. And guess which one was the most prevalent in this first century as Jesus walked the earth? It was this one over here. And so what the common sentiment was in this time is that if your wife burns your food, if your wife starts looking a little bit old, maybe she has a couple of gray hairs, but you look over here and you see a woman who's not yet married, who's about six years younger, you can get rid of your, your own wife for any reason that she wants you and make a play at this other woman over here. Maybe marry her. Make her your own wife. And so what the, what the perception was with, with a lot of men in this time was it's out with the old and it's in with the new. And as you might guess, marriage, divorce, and remarriage was, was all that the Pharisees wanted to have an argument about, it seemed at times. And that's what makes me so queasy, really, about in the church. All of, all of these people who just want to fight with you about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, that's Scribes and Pharisees 101. And I don't want to be anything like that. And on one occasion, if you, also in Matthew, if you go to chapter 19, we have one of those occasions where, where, where we see scribes and Pharisees confronting Jesus about this. And Jesus points back to the very beginning in Genesis. Matthew 19, the beginning of verse 3, says that some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? And that, of course, speaks about the beauty of marriage. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. And so what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And yet these guys love to argue about this, and, and they are by no means finished with Jesus. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, It was because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But I want you to know that from the beginning it was not this way. And then he says what, what he's already said in Matthew 5, that that whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And I can't help but laugh at the apostles' response to this in verse 10. They just kind of speak up and say, Jesus, if you're taking marriage this seriously, then, then why should anybody take a wife to begin with? And there is some validity to that, but I mean, this is just how serious Jesus is about the institution of marriage. But I find so interesting that, that when we waste so much time arguing and clawing at each other about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, it's almost always because this one verse has been lifted up all by itself. And when we take any verse and we isolate it out of its context, what we do, especially here on, here on the Sermon on the Mount, we lose sight of what the context is. Because what is the context of these past few messages here in the Sermon on the Mount. It's verse 20 of Matthew 5. 
where Jesus says not to have a self-righteousness as the scribes and the Pharisees do, but rather here is the kind of righteousness that you need. It is a great injustice to only get outraged about divorce because the exact same Savior who speaks this, this strongly about divorce also says that if you even have animosity with a brother, you are guilty of murder. That if you even say you fool to a brother or to a sister in Christ, then the hells of fire are that close to you. That if you look at a person who is not your spouse and you are lusting after them, you just committed soul adultery. We need to view all of these on an equal playing field and to know that, that Jesus takes all of these just as seriously. Things that I would imagine catch every one of us if we're not cautious. It's not just those who have gotten a divorce for crying out loud. And so we must not view divorce as this arbitrary black and white matter where if, if, if anybody goes through a divorce for any reason, they are wicked and they are evil and they're going straight to hell. This, this is a very wrong reaction to this. Rather, we need to look at this on a case-by-case -case basis. And that's because, after all, sometimes, as Jesus has already alluded to, sometimes divorce is necessary. It sounds wrong. I mean, I understand. But, but sometimes, as we see in Scripture, divorce is, in fact, something that's very necessary. As Jesus alluded to in the Law of Moses, for instance, here's where it says that a husband must write out a certificate of divorce if he's in a situation where his wife has been found in some indecency of some kind. And then Jesus moves on from there and he says, except for unchastity. And that word unchastity comes from a Greek word. And, and notice how the very first four words of that word are porn. But it's also the root word of what, where we get the word for a prostitute. It is the word sexual immorality, it is idolatry, and it is a fornication. And so this is what Jesus references. And, and if there is a situation where, where at this time a um, husband has experienced this from a wife, he says, by all means, put her away in divorce if you are going to want to do that. And yet, I know many people in the church, though, who have been divorced for all kinds of reasons. And there is one person in particular who is very close to Amanda and I, who we know at another church. And they were once in a marriage where their husband was extremely controlling eventually. He was very abusive. I mean, in every conceivable sense, psychologically abusive, in a physical sense. He, you know, he got very physical with them. And he was very unfaithful to them, um, also going after other women. And... And this friend of ours felt so threatened and in such a state of danger, they didn't think that they could actually survive if they stayed in that marriage. And so they felt like, I've got to get away from this person if I want to live. I mean, it was that bad. And this spouse had eventually died of AIDS. It got so bad to give you an idea of what he was up to. But wouldn't you know that many people in the church have gone up to this friend of ours and said, no, you need it to go back to that first husband because we're just going to look at this so dogmatically and not look at this on a case-by-case -case basis. I read another story 
about a minister where a woman in the church where, where he was a minister of came up to him and said that, I don't know what to do because I am in this marriage where my husband, after we had gotten married, told me that it was just a front because he's homosexual. And according to this woman's story, at least, she had said that he was bringing men over to their house and getting into, you know, I'll just let you use your imagination, stuff with those guys right in front of his wife, I mean, right in her face in their house. And yet I've met a lot of people in the church who said, doesn't matter, you need to stay with that guy no matter what. And that simply is not the case, is it? I think oftentimes what, what often gets, gets lost in all of this marriage, divorce, and remarriage talk is that there is a difference between godly covenantal marriage and what we would call worldly marriage. Now, what I mean by that is that godly covenantal marriage is a, is a marriage, just as almost everybody here, I imagine, entered into, where when Amanda and I had gotten married, I mean, we were approaching this as, this is not just a huge party we're throwing for ourselves. Halfway into our, our um, wedding, we got down on our hands and knees and we prayed and we said, God, we are making a covenant before you. We promise that we will love each other and we will aspire to love you as Christ loves the church. We want our marriage to be a commercial to this world about how much you love your church. I mean, that is a godly covenantal marriage as we know of it as. And there's quite a difference between making a promise consciously before God and a couple of people who have never really believed in God before, or maybe one person who has never believed in God before, or maybe a couple of people who are drunk three o'clock in the morning and they're getting married by an Elvis impersonator in Las Vegas. <laughs> Huge difference between those two. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, we don't have time to read the entire chapter, but I encourage everybody to go home and read 1 Corinthians 7 if you have any more questions about this. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul begins echoing what Jesus has already said, do not get a divorce at all cost. But then in verse 12, Paul shifts and he starts speaking about a specific situation where there might be one Christian spouse and an unbelieving spouse. And he begins by saying, you, the Christian spouse, do not seek a divorce because maybe you can save that person's soul with the help of God, of course. But then notice how at the very bottom here, he shifts yet again and he says, yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, notice he says, let him go, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not, repeat, not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us all to peace. And this friend of mine who is a Christian and their spouse never was, and as far as he's concerned, he never intends to be a Christian. When he got out of that marriage, at that point, according to, to Scripture, let him leave. You are not under bondage anymore to that spouse. And yet, every time that this friend of mine goes to a worship service, you're under bondage. You should not have allowed him to leave. And that simply is not the case as we see in Scripture. We've got to stop viewing marriage, divorce, and remarriage automatically, jumping to the conclusion that it's some kind of unrede you know, unredeemable evil that, that, you're, that you're going to go to hell if you go through a divorce for any reason. Because sometimes there are very specific situations 
where divorce might just be necessary. And yet, if we can get back to our text at hand, though, there were two main problems about divorce in this time. And the very first of these problems was the experience of the woman. Now, divorce in this time, it really only served a husband. And the husband held all of the power. A wife could not just, just go and get a divorce on her own. It could only be done through the husband. And I need to remind all of us that this was a time in which women were treated as property of their husbands. Women had absolutely zero rights. And so when a man would just let go of his wife for literally any reason that, that he had conceived, socially speaking, this was a death blow to his wife. Her life just got very, very hard. I mean, her life was absolutely ruined at that point. Because your self-worth as a woman living in this time came down to a couple things. How subservient of a housewife that you were and how many children you had bore your husband. That was what your self-worth had been riding on. And if you did not have children, you were looked upon as if you were a sinful person and God had been doing this as a retribution to you. But especially if you had no husband, you were looked upon as this colossal failure of a human being, worthless person, who was just a throwaway spouse. And so women had, had a couple options then. A woman could, could perhaps move in with, with a relative of theirs, but, but work there as a servant. They could remarry, but they would be always viewed as if they were damaged goods. And then as a last resort, evidently some women who had been divorced went into a life of prostitution. But regardless if a woman had been married or, divor or divorced, a first century Hebrew woman always kept it in the back of her head that in any time, that in any moment, and that for any reason imaginable, I could be sent away in divorce that I could be replaced for any reason. And what this had to have made women feel like in those days is that I'm expendable, that I am replaceable. And yet the worst that could ever happen to her husband who just divorced her, he would spend maybe two or three hours getting a certificate of divorce finalized and then his in-laws might not like him anymore. Ooh, right? horrible experience for her husband. And yet the other main problem that Jesus is addressing here is that many people, as I already alluded to, many people viewed marriage as very disposable in these times. Now in our world, a lot of us have smartphones. And maybe every three or four years on my cell phone plan, I have the option to, to upgrade to a brand new iPhone. So you get this brand new iPhone right out of the box. It's never been, been used before. It's faster and, and it's larger and it looks better. I imagine every one of us have had cars before and we enjoy those cars for a short while, maybe eight, nine, ten years, maybe at the most. And yet then we reach a point where, where, where what do we do? We, we will trade up for a newer model of a car. And that's fine if it's objects that we're treating like that. And yet, that is no way to treat a woman or to treat a spouse or to, or to view a marriage as if it were as disposable as those items were. 
Jesus looks like he's making a very harsh statement here. But in fact, what he is doing is he's saying that, that you guys can't keep treating your wives like this. You can't keep desecrating the institution of marriage because here is what God has designed it to be. And yet I look at the church today and there it's been said that across Christendom at least half of the marriages are ending in divorce. And again, for all kinds of reasons, we don't know why all of these divorces are happening, but it just makes me laugh anytime I see an evangelical who is picketing at a gay parade as if you guys are, are disrespecting the institution of marriage when they might be on their, their second or third marriage themselves. Yikes. You see, what Jesus is doing here is actually revolutionary. He is siding with the oppressed people, which in this case would be wives. Now, Pharisees are obsessing about divorce, but Jesus is emphasizing marriage. If you ask Pharisees what the most important concern was in marriage, it would have been that certificate of divorce. Jesus is saying your wife is the most important matter of your, your marriage that your spouse is the most important thing, that this institution called marriage, that is what is most important here. Nurture it at all costs. And yet, we look at our world today and marriages are just as disposable as they were then, it seems like. We remember Elizabeth Taylor and, I mean, how many, I mean, how many times was she married? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven times she was married. We think about Larry King married six times. We think about Zsa Zsa Gabor married nine different times. And it just seems like marriage is just something that we can just throw away as if it were an iPhone or a disposable razor. And yet it's not just Hollywood, is it? I think one of the last weddings that I had officiated, it was a very beautiful day and it was an outdoors wedding on a farm. And they were genuinely in love with each other. But then I get the call less than one year later that the wife had just vanished and she had packed a suitcase and she was out, out the door. And her husband had no idea why that happened. And whether it applied to this case or not, because I'm not armed with, with um, all, all of those facts either, but in a lot of cases, at least, it just seems like the moment that it stops being fun, the moment that it requires sacrifice or a struggle, as we learn to live together, then I'm out of here. And all of this is over. You know, I laughed at this um, cartoon caption where he says, that I now pronounce you husband and wife. You may now update your Facebook statuses. Because after all, in our society today, that, you know, this is becoming the most important thing about the attention that is coming our way and not so much what we're doing in and of itself. And yet God views Christian marriage as, I mean, as important as our relationship as a church with him and with good reason. And that's because did you know that God himself once got a divorce? That God once filled out a certificate of divorce and sent his wife away. As we read in the days of Jeremiah the prophet, make a long story short, in, in this chapter, God has been very long-suffering with the Israelites, but they just keep being faithless. 
they keep going after other gods. And so God eventually reaches the point where he says that, and I saw that for all of the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. And I know that there are people in this room who have been through a divorce. And I know for a fact that it was not your fault. That you were treated as if you were property or that you were as disposable or as worthless as a throwaway razor or an old iPhone. I want you to know that the God who created you, that he can empathize with what it feels like to be unwanted. That he knows what, what all of the pains of divorce and the severance of this relationship is all about because he's been there in a spiritual sense. And I want you to know that, that I will never, ever, ever look at you in that judgmental way and say that you are going to hell because you've been through a divorce. Jerry, if you ever hear me say that to anybody in this church, fire me on the spot. Because that is not the kind of minister that this church needs. And I just want you to know that, that I love you and that I sympathize with your pain and that I will not judge you for that. Notice how Jesus cites in Matthew chapter 19 that it's the hardness of the heart that is the cause for divorce. Even before he mentions adultery, it's the hardness of heart. Here Jesus mentions being faithless and being idolatrous. And all of a sudden, this matter of divorce is something that we don't really want to rush into judgment to on other people because, well, we might be guilty of spiritual idolatry in some case, or in spiritual divorce, perhaps. Because we know that God so jealously wants to be the only God who we serve that, that, that once upon a time, God said that my name is jealous. And that sin's chills down my spine every time I read it because it is jealous with a capital J. When Moses comes down off Mount Sinai and he sees the Israelites genuflecting before a golden calf, God has Moses grind that thing into powder and to make them drink the remnants of that idol. So that an hour later, the God that they had been falsely worshiping was literally coming out of their bodies. That's how jealous God is. And yet in the Sermon on the Mount, though, notice that, that Jesus only mentions divorce after he's already spoken about anger and about lust. And what is most responsible for the majority of, of a divorce in our world other than anger and of lust? Jesus seems to be speaking about the root of divorce here. And so, like Jesus, and unlike Pharisees, our main takeaway this morning is, rather than obsessing about divorce, either arguing about it, or if you've been through a divorce and, and always feeling like, like I'm not that important, I believe what Jesus wants us to emphasize when it comes to this matter is life rather than death. And if you have been through a divorce and, you, and it was not your, your fault in any way, I believe what the God of love wants for you is to just know that he's been there before and that his grace reaches you and that he loves you and that you are so very important to him as well as to this church. 
My favorite picture of Amanda and I also came at our wedding. And the reason why this is my favorite picture of my wife is because look at the smile on her face. As we had our first dance as husband and wife, I mean, she's got this spark in her eye. And ever since I saw that spark, I never want that spark to ever go away. And yet as it goes in marriages, you get so consumed. You come back from the honeymoon and, you, and waiting for you are all these overdue bills and money problems. And for a lot of people, kids, praise God, I don't have that, you know, all that trouble just yet. But, but man, you just get so bogged down in life that you lose that spark in your eye for each other. And yet I believe that for all of us who are married this morning, get that spark back. And I'm speaking to, to me as well. Never stop pursuing the heart of your spouse because if, if my wife had a spark in her eye that day, if I keep pursuing her heart deeper and I keep courting her, I believe that we can actually fall in love with each other all over again. Go back to your wedding day. Look at old pictures from your wedding. Look at, even if you have vows from your wedding, blow the dust off of them. And read them as if you had just written them. And I guarantee you that that spark will return. Yet mainly what we need to do this morning is to go back to the baptistry. Is to go back to that special moment when we just came up out of the waters of baptism and we had that spark in our eye for our God. God once wrote a church at Ephesus and said that you have left your first love. And what he says basically is rekindle the spark. Love me like you did at the very start. And I close with this thought this morning. When it comes to a couple that I admire the absolute most, who I learned from in terms of how to be a spouse, I marvel at the love that my grandparents had. On the left is, is them one year before they got married in 1947. And notice how in, the, in, in one of the very last pictures taken of them, my grandfather still has that spark in his eye for my grandmother. And yet if you look very carefully though, they're still holding hands. He still has that spark in his eye just as he did 67 years earlier. May we never lose that spark in our eyes for our spouse or for our God. Josh Dees, Josh Dees, Josh Dees, Josh Dees. I'm at church, they're passing out get acorns. You're at the church and they're passing out acorns? <laughs>